Mark, Good News by Elizabeth Vieira Talbot Read by Elizabeth Vieira Talbot Dedication I dedicate this booklet to you, my dear Jesus, because you gave your life as a ransom for me. I will be eternally grateful for all of your suffering and death on my behalf. I now live with the assurance of my salvation through your merits, and I joyfully dedicate my life to you. I love you. E.T. Contents The Gospel of the Servant, the Authority of the Servant, the Power of the Servant, the Suffering of the Servant, the Zeal of the Servant, the Covenant of the Servant. Chapter 1 The Gospel of the Servant I have good news and bad news for you. Which one do you want first? I usually want the good news first, hoping that it will outweigh the bad news that follows. Even though it is cancer, it is curable. That's the good news. Well, praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. So what's the bad news? It all started on Mother's Day 2011. My parents, my husband, and I were celebrating the special day in a restaurant. I still have a photo I took with my iPhone that day. In the middle of the meal, my dad showed us an unusual swelling on his neck. He casually mentioned that he must have strained a muscle or something, but the swelling had grown to a golf ball size within the last four days. I made him promise me that he would go to the doctor that week. You see, he, like my mother, is a cancer survivor. He had already survived two types of cancer and was doing great. What were the chances that the same person would get hit with a third type of cancer? Just in case, I made him promise to see his doctor. The results came back and the unthinkable was happening. He now had a third type of cancer. It was located in the lymphatic system, but we didn't know much more than that. After several tests and a biopsy, the good news and the bad news came in. The good news was that the chances of survival were great. It was considered a pretty curable cancer. Science had advanced in this area of cancer treatment and the percentages presented to us were on his side. It was the least aggressive cancer of its kind. Praise the Lord! What about the bad news? He would have to suffer through several months of heavy and difficult chemotherapy. He was sure to experience a loss of energy and other side effects and the possibility of anemia and weight loss were also part of the equation. Yes, much suffering awaited him throughout the upcoming months, pretty much for the whole year. But the good news far outweighed the bad news. When the suffering is over, the cancer would probably be gone. As I write this booklet at the beginning of 2012, my father is cancer-free, and the only news left is the good news. And once again, I praise the Lord. We are starting a journey with Mark, the author of the shortest gospel, through his fascinating account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He also brings good news and bad news. Which one do you want first? Okay, I see you have chosen wisely. Let's start with the good news. The good news. The author of this exciting book is John Mark, a co-worker of the Apostle Peter. He writes in a time of crisis and suffering to encourage the faith of those who are overwhelmed 
by the fearful circumstances surrounding them. He wants to tell them the good news about Jesus and that the final victory against evil is assured. It is believed that this gospel is Peter's witness of Christ, as he shared it with Mark, his associate in the ministry. And this claim makes sense for many reasons, including the fact that this gospel portrays Peter in a pretty negative light, as if Peter told all of his mishaps to Mark and he diligently wrote them down. The Gospel of Mark has a fast-moving narrative style that makes you feel like you're right there witnessing the story. Mark utilizes the Greek historical present tense, many times narrating past actions in the present, something like, and then Jesus comes and says. The pace of the story is also accelerated by the use of an adverb usually translated as immediately, giving the impression that everything is happening very promptly. In addition, he uses vivid descriptions of details, events, and people. Even though this is the shortest gospel of the four, when Mark tells a story also found in other gospels, it is usually the longest version because it includes details that the other gospel writers do not record. Mark opens his book by stating the beginning of the gospel, good news, of Jesus Christ, Mark 1.1. Hence, our subtitle, Mark, Good News. The Greek noun, euangelion, is translated into English as good news or gospel, a term that comes from the Old English God spell, which means good news. The Greek term was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to announce God's ultimate deliverance of his people. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns, Isaiah 52, 7. When Jesus announces the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, Mark 1, 1 emphasis added, the listeners know that God has come near to bring salvation. Gospel became Paul's favorite term to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I think it is highly significant that Mark chose this term to introduce his book about Jesus. From the very beginning, Mark calls Jesus Christ, anointed, and Son of God, Mark 1, 1. He does not record Jesus' birth, the angel's announcement to the shepherds in the fields, Luke 2, or the visit of the wise men from the east, Matthew 2. After a brief mention of the coming of John the Baptist, thereby fulfilling prophecy, Mark takes us directly to Jesus' baptism and public ministry, Mark 1, 9-13. Right after the baptism, Mark records that Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Mark 1.14, emphasis added. The first half of this gospel highlights Jesus' authority and power as the Son of God. Jesus is in charge, possessing great power over nature, demons, disease, and death. From Mark 1.1 to 8.30, everyone is in awe of Jesus. The Deliverer has come with power and might, but no one could have ever imagined what was coming next. The bad news. In the middle of the book, 
the unimaginable happens. The bad news is revealed for the first time. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark 8, 31. Killed? How can the Christ be killed? This was the biggest oxymoron anyone had ever heard. How could God allow his anointed to be killed? Is Jesus the Son of God or not? These were the types of questions that no doubt were going through the minds of the disciples. This news was so bad that they didn't even hear it. They were in denial. If they had paid attention, they would have heard also the final outcome. Jesus would rise again. But the bad news clouded their understanding, because pain does that sometimes. Jesus was not only the authoritative Son of God, but He was also the suffering Son of Man, who would become the servant of God and give His life as a ransom for many. The key verse in this Gospel is Mark 10, 45, because it answers the question in everyone's mind. Why does Jesus have to die? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. Mark 10.45 The good news is the cancer of sin is curable. Humankind will not be separated from God forever. The bad news is Jesus will have to suffer and die in our place in order to reconcile us to God. Then He will rise again, and we will have only good news left. It is important to understand the narrative structure of this gospel to be able to follow the plot. Each half of the book asks a question and eventually provides an answer to it. The circle located right before the top of the graphic, see page 11, points to a pivotal miracle immediately preceding Mark 8.31, which divides the book into two halves. We will devote chapter 4 of this booklet to that section of Mark. In the first half, Mark 1, 1 to 8.30, everyone is asking, who is this man? From 8.31 on, everyone is stunned by the bad news that he has to die. From that moment on, Jesus will be on his way to Jerusalem for his final suffering and death. Please take a moment to understand the narrative structure of the Gospel of Mark in this graphic. 1, 1 to 8.31, the question is, who is this man? The answer, he's the Christ, the authoritative son of God. 831 to 1620, the question is, why will Jesus die? His life is a ransom. He's the servant, the suffering son of man. Good news again. At the time when Mark wrote this account of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, all of it had already taken place. Jesus had died and been resurrected. This is the core proclamation of the first century church. Jesus is victor and he's coming back for us. All the news that's left is the good news, just like in my story at the beginning of this chapter. The suffering that brought us peace has already taken place. Isaiah 53, 4-6 And now we get to celebrate the outcome. This gospel is a very encouraging book because it reminds us that no matter what we are going through today, the final victory has already been attained by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. 
And that, my friend, is good news. So are you ready? Let's get started. Chapter 2. The Authority of the Servant Suffering is hard enough, but when in addition to suffering, you also feel alone. It is easy to fall into hopelessness. I remember a particular Christmas many, many years ago. It was a difficult and lonely season in my life, and I would spend Christmas Day alone. Let me tell you that I happen to enjoy being alone sometimes, especially when I need to hear God's answer on a particular matter or when I'm studying and writing a book or a sermon. During these times, I cherish solitude. But this wasn't one of those times. This was a dark, cold loneliness, a time of helplessness and of unspeakable pain. It was a time of mourning, the type that takes a long time to process because dreams die slowly and painfully. It wasn't helping that this was the holiday season, a time of family togetherness and celebration. I was about to spend Christmas Day by myself, pondering the future and hoping to find strength in the Lord. But deep inside, in my soul, in the sacred place where no one else is allowed to enter, I was feeling alone, terribly alone. My parents, who had always been very supportive and loving, lived on the east coast of the United States, while I lived on the other coast, in California. Neither my parents nor I had enough money to visit the other for Christmas that year. So they had planned to spend it in Maryland, and I would be alone, only with my thoughts and questions. But then something incredible happened. I received good news, something that I couldn't have possibly imagined. An airline decided to advertise a very inexpensive special fare just for Christmas. However, the promotion came with a very specific restriction. The trip both ways had to be completed within a window of 48 hours on December 24 and 25. I understand that a one-day visit like this would make sense for people who live relatively close to their loved ones. But who would cross the whole country, flying six hours each way in less than 48 hours? Well, my parents did. They called me to announce excitedly that both of them were coming to spend Christmas together with me. They would arrive on December 24 and leave the following evening. Wow, I can't even describe what I felt. How could anyone love me that much? and come all this distance just to let me know that I was not alone? I will never forget that Christmas. I remember every detail about it, even today. I was not alone after all. Someone loved me and cared for me deeply. Sometimes love and suffering require extraordinary and unexpected measures. In this chapter, we will ponder the story of a man suffering greatly, who also needed to know that someone cared. This is a story about wildly unpredictable words and actions. Say what? Jesus had returned to Capernaum, Mark 2.1, something that when in Capernaum, Jesus would normally stay at Peter's place, Mark 1.21 and 29. So people started gathering, and not just to be healed or to witness miracles, but also to hear the word of God. 
He was speaking the word to them. Mark 2.2 I believe the same hunger for God's word exists today. I don't agree when some say that people are no longer interested. They might not be interested in church entertainment or superficial talk, but I believe with all my heart that people are still thirsty for the living water. When the living water is preached and Christ is lifted up, He actually draws all people to Himself. John 12, 32 On this occasion, like many others, there was no more room in the house, not even near the door. Mark 2, 2 Every time I read in the Gospels that there was no room, I think of the paradox of Jesus' birth. When He came to this world, there was no room for Him in the inn. Luke 2.7. Now, as the world is starting to discover who he is and the message he brings, there is no room because of the crowd that follows him. Going back to our story. So you get the picture, a limited space packed with listeners. Jesus is speaking and the people are excited, listening ears and eager eyes, watching his every move. You could hear a pin drop. And all of that is interrupted. Excuses, excuses, coming through. But no one wanted to lose his or her spot in the house, so no one moved. And they came bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men, being unable to get to him because of the crowd. Mark 2, 3 and 4. Unable to get to him? First of all, why did they want to get so close to Jesus anyway? Couldn't they just watch him on the big screen outside the house or on their iPhones? Obviously, their friend was desperate. And this type of suffering calls for desperate measures. These four men, whoever they were, were ready to cross the country for their friend, if necessary, on foot, carrying him. We don't know much about this man's physical ailment other than the fact that he could not walk. But the determination of the four men to bring him to Jesus highlights the reality that his condition was most wretched. So, they couldn't get in. They're ready to go back, right? Wrong. Excuses, excuses, coming through. They make their way to the side of the house. You can imagine the crowd thinking that they have given up. No way! They're pulling out all the stops. In the first century, a house in Palestine would usually have a flat roof and stairs outside the house to access it. So the four men start going up the stairs with the paralytic in his mat, the two on the top pulling and the two on the bottom pushing, and they get to the roof. Now what? You can imagine one of them saying, let's make a hole in the roof. And the other one saying, say what? All four of them are probably scratching their heads. Finally, they somehow agree and start digging in the roof. Ordinarily, a flat roof would have been built of wooden beams covered with tree branches, which in turn would be topped with clay. So if they really want to get through, they need to remove the top of the roof and then they have some digging to do. Little pieces of clay start dropping on the floor inside the house in front of Jesus. Desperate times call for desperate measures. They removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Verse 4. 
They won't stop at anything. They will go as far as needed. I want friends like that, don't you? I also want to be a friend like that. Their concern surpasses their comfort and even their honor. They don't mind being seen as fools. They just want their friends healing. But he's about to receive so much more than the ability to walk. Forgiven. Jesus saw the faith of these four men. But instead of addressing them, he addressed the paralytic. After all, the paralytic was the reason why they'd come, climbed on the roof and dug a hole. The sick man was the one suffering and in need of healing. What will Jesus say? How will he heal this needy man? How will he respond to these desperate measures? And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Mark 2, 5. Excuse me? We came for a miracle of healing. What is going on here? These are certainly unexpected words. We didn't come for a religious service or for a session of confession and forgiveness. Or did we? The first unexpected surprise is the way Jesus addresses this man who, by being disabled, was thought of as cursed by God. He calls him technon in Greek, a word of endearment translated as son or child. This is the only time in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus addresses a single person using this endearing term. There's one other time when Jesus is addressing his disciples as a group and he calls them children, Mark 10, 24. Can you imagine what this single word would have done for a man in that condition? What does this single word do for you today when you find yourself suffering and desperate? Can you hear Jesus saying to you, My child, my son, my daughter, daddy is here. Instead of a stern God filled with rage and judgment, the paralytic finds a loving father ready to cross the universe from east to west to bring him the deepest kind of healing. Son, your sins are forgiven. Mark 2, 5. You are at peace with God. You are forgiven and things are going to be all right. I can envision a loving parent embracing a child after the child has made a terrible, in quotations, mistake, such as spilling a can of red paint in the middle of a white carpeted living room. The parent embraces the child, who is still covered from head to toe in paint, and caressing her hair, announces softly, Shh, shh, it's okay, my child, it's okay. You're forgiven, don't worry. Everything is going to be okay. We all need and want to know that we're at peace with God, that we're forgiven. There is no deeper realization for a human being than to know that you're forgiven. Deep within, we all need to know and believe this core truth. Through Jesus' costly sacrifice, we are forgiven. The front cover of my devotional journal offers this wonderful formula. Three nails plus one cross equal four given. Who are you? Many religious folks don't think forgiveness should be that easy. 
cheap grace, in quotations, they sometimes mistakenly call it, for getting the real cost. Thinking that disabled, in quotations, people should run an obstacle course and prove themselves fit before such forgiveness is freely granted. Instead of rejoicing, they question. Instead of praising, they reason. Instead of welcoming, they grumble. Shouldn't the carpet and the child be cleaned first before forgiveness is freely offered? But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verses 6 and 7. And the hearts of the scribes are filled with incriminating questions. Why does this man speak that way? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why so many questions? Why is Jesus' pronouncement not acceptable to these experts of the law? This is the first of five consecutive controversy stories between scribes and or Pharisees and Jesus. The religious leaders and Jesus just don't see eye to eye. This would be a good time to learn a little more about the phrase that Jesus used in our current story. Your sins are forgiven. Verse 5. The passive phrase, your sins are forgiven, would have been used by those who acted as God's representatives when announcing that a person's sins were forgiven. This would have been an acceptable announcement if it happened at the temple, after the person had brought his or her sacrifice and a confession was heard. The priest could then say something like, your sins have been forgiven, because the priests and the teachers of the law often use the passive form to describe God's acts on behalf of the people. Prophets had brought such messages of pardon in the past. See Nathan speaking to David in 2 Samuel 12, 13, The Lord also has taken away your sin. But in this case, there was no real basis for such forgiveness. No one has heard even a shred of repentance. Plus, Jesus was not a priest, and the scene does not take place in the temple, in front of a sacrifice. Therefore, the why and the who are questioning the authority through which Jesus is saying these things. In other words, who does he think he is? God? Jesus has opened up a new grace brokerage, and he's offering it outside of their system, disrupting their monopoly of God's grace, and they don't like it one bit. No religious group should ever claim to have a monopoly on God's grace. Our God is greater than all religious structures put together. But how will we control the people if we don't have a monopoly? Exactly, we won't. Because control was never supposed to be the means that God used to draw us to himself. He uses intrinsic bonds of love, Hosea 11.4, and not extrinsic fear and control. So they decide in their hearts that Jesus is blaspheming because he's claiming to have authority to announce God's forgiveness. This is the same charge posed by the scribes, elders, chief priests, and high priests at the end of Jesus' public ministry. See Mark 14, 53, 61 to 64. God alone, not even the Messiah in Jewish theology, could forgive sins. Well, we are God's representatives on earth. And who are you, Jesus? And why are you saying these things? So that you may know. 
I was the new senior pastor in a church, and we had planned a church-wide activity for that evening. I decided to go early to make sure that the main hall was ready. To my surprise, I found a large singing group, which sometimes rented our church facilities, rehearsing in the main hall. I walked in and let them know that we would be using this part of the church that evening. They replied that someone had told them that the hall was available for their rehearsal, to which I answered that next time they should call the church office to make sure there was nothing scheduled in the master calendar for the church and to get authorization directly from the pastor. The dialogue was short and amicable. And then a man from the group addressed me. And who are you, dear? I am the pastor, I replied. After a brief and awkward silence, the director of the group explained to him and the rest of the singers with a big smile that I was the newly elected senior pastor and then he said some nice things about me. It was an interesting moment, to say the least. The men who spoke up and I still laugh about that day every time we meet. I think it reminds us both of the paradox of an unexpected answer to the who are you question. The scribes never saw it coming. They had been asking the question in their minds, never even saying them out loud. They never thought Jesus could read their minds. They really had no idea. They never expected Jesus to be God and to know everything they were thinking. And now he had a few questions of his own. Immediately, Jesus aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk? Mark 2, 8 and 9. Why are you reasoning like this? Which is easier? Do you have any answers? At that moment, they must have thought that Jesus was a prophet because prophets were given supernatural knowledge. They were astonished. They can't even grasp what's happening. The forgiveness of sin was and is always the greatest miracle, but it happens on the inside, so you can't see it immediately, and therefore you can doubt it if you are a scribe. Oh, says Jesus, I get it. You want to see who I am. Well, if you must, let me show you who I am, so that you may know. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, verse 10, emphasis added, Excuse me? Did you say that you have authority to forgive sins? On earth? Wait, wait, wait a minute. First of all, no one has that authority on earth. That is the unique prerogative of God whom we represent. Is this a claim to deity? Are you telling us that you are God? Are you the son of man whom Daniel spoke about? See Daniel 7, 13 and 14. This title of Jesus, which was his favorite self-designation, was a veiled messianic title prophesied hundreds of years before. This designation for Jesus will be developed more fully and will be used more often in the second half of the Gospel of Mark but it is introduced twice within the setting of authority in this chapter. This is the first time. Mark 2.28 is the second. After all, the Son of Man is also the Son of God. Get up! 
As I was saying, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. Verses 10 and 11. Yep, just get up. If I can forgive sins, then I can definitely heal you. Just do it. You see, both things, forgiveness and healing, are impossible for mankind. But both are possible for God. He's the healer of mind, body, and soul. So, get up, pick up, and go. And the man got up, picked up his pallet, and went. Verse 12. That simple. That real. Forgiven. Everyone got more than they were expecting. The four men didn't have to carry their friend back home. No, he could walk, run, and leap. No, the paralytic got forgiveness. Jesus knew he needed it the most. That's why Jesus dealt with it first. The only ones left scratching their heads were the scribes. Since they started to think, who are you? They received a tidal wave of answers. I am the son of man who has authority to forgive sins on earth and can heal a paralytic and you've seen him walk. Any other questions? The confirmation of the miracle is exuberant. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Verse 12. In other words, woohoo! I hope that at least some of the scribes were part of all the amazed ones, even though I wouldn't hold my breath. Because in this gospel, the religious representatives have such a hard time joining the crowd in glorifying God for what Jesus is doing. In the Jewish scriptures, Old Testament, healing is often the demonstration of God's forgiveness. Both are often used as parallel concepts. 2 Chronicles 7.14, Psalm 103.3. So which one is easier? Both are divine prerogatives, fully available through the Son of Man, exclusively. Are you in desperate need today? Do you need forgiveness? Are you in need of getting up from your mat of depression or inadequate feelings? Are you paralyzed by guilt or shame? Have others lost their faith in you? Well, desperate times call for desperate measures. If you ask God right now to help you, He will send His Holy Spirit immediately. No one can block the entrance to this house. You can come boldly into His presence through Jesus Christ. His Spirit will start your healing process at once, and He doesn't even need to wait for an airfare special. Right where you are, right now. Let's repeat this reality together aloud so that you can hear yourself saying it. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Hebrews 10, 19-22 our confidence is in the blood of Jesus. It's His authority. So, get up, pick up, go. Chapter 3, The Power of the Servant 
Let me start with a simple fact. I really dislike wind. I particularly don't like windstorms. This happened a few months after we had moved into our new home. There was a breeze outside that night, quite pleasant, but a bit too strong for my taste. We went to sleep without giving it a second thought. But in the middle of the night, we were woken up by a noise so loud that for a moment we thought there was a train crossing our backyard. Having been woken up so suddenly, both my husband and I were trying to figure out what was the source of the noise. We soon realized that we were in the middle of an unusual windstorm that seemed like a hurricane, something we were not used to in Southern California. Completely terrified and out of breath, I called the police, the fire department, and anybody else I could think of. Help! We're being blown away! The wind is simply outrageous! What is this, a hurricane? No, ma'am, responded a calm voice on the other end. These are the Santa Ana winds. This can't be just Santa Ana winds, I cried out. We're about to lose the roof of our brand new home and the whole house is shaking. We are in danger. Yep, these are the Santa Ana winds. We're having a strong episode. A strong episode? I thought to myself, 30 miles an hour is a strong episode. This is a hurricane. The voice went on. This is the season. The season? You mean this is normal and I will have to put up with it for the rest of my life? There was nothing I could say to convince this person that we were in trouble. We couldn't even get out of the house because it was dark and debris was flying everywhere. As my husband was trying to calm me down, we decided to pray. I prayed that God would calm the wind and my nerves. I prayed that we wouldn't lose our roof or our minds. I prayed that we wouldn't get hurt. As soon as I finished praying, my husband fell asleep. Asleep? Not me. I kept praying and watching and worrying, almost having a heart attack. When he woke up in the morning, he cheerfully announced, See? You have the gift of prayer, but I have the gift of faith. In my defense, let me just make it clear that this was an unusually strong episode of Santa Ana winds. In the morning, we found that our backyard fence had been pushed into our neighbor's property, and our tool shed had landed on a street two blocks away. We had had 90 mile per hour winds, which, by the way, qualify as hurricane force winds. I had not been informed that we had moved into a home built in a high wind area. I have made some adjustments since then, which includes a place of escape in the home of gracious friends a couple of miles away, whenever the forecast indicates that the winds will exceed 70 miles per hour. Oh, the gift of faith. The Lord knows that I would do anything for him, go over the whole world preaching the gospel, climb the highest mountain, or cross the widest river just to bring people the good news. But staying in my house during a windstorm? I'm still working on this one. This is why I love our next narrative so much. I really get how the disciples must have felt, you know? They have exhausted all of their skills as experienced fishermen, even all the survival and knot tying skills that they had learned as pathfinders, boy scouts. They have been calling the fire department for help, but nothing works. Jesus, on the other hand, has the gift of faith. He is sleeping. 
a sudden storm. I think the storm you are not expecting is the worst kind. You don't even see it coming. You're having a wonderful evening with your family and the telephone rings. The results show cancer. Your daughter is in jail. They're laying you off. And suddenly your world starts falling apart. The evening has started calmly. Perhaps a gentle breeze and Jesus initiates this trip. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Mark 4.35 Everything is going well. Jesus is guiding them and now he has given them an order. In the Greek text, Mark uses the historical present tense here, which would be, and he says to them, let us go over to the other side. I love the Mark and historical present. It makes you feel like you're right there, he says. They take him, they wake him up, and so on. You're right there. You know what I mean? So Jesus says that it is time to expand the ministry and go to the other side. The other side? Are you sure, Jesus? Do you really want to go to this unclean, impure territory? We are safe on the Galilean soil, don't you think? The other side is very significant in Mark. As a matter of fact, spaces and geography are very important in Mark. You can usually tell when you are on this side or on the other side. We are now crossing to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and who knows what we will find there? But before we even get there, a fierce windstorm hits the sea. Bam! A train crossing your backyard. And there arose a fierce, from the Greek, megale, mega, gale of wind, verse 37. We're having a strong episode of Galilee winds. A strong episode? We know what strong is. We are fishermen. This is not strong. This is an evil tempest. Matthew calls it a seismos megas, a mega shaking like an earthquake in the lake. See Matthew 8:24. We knew we shouldn't have gone to the other side. The Sea of Galilee, a lake also called the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias, John 6:1, and the Lake of Gennesaret, Luke 5:1, was particularly prone to such sudden and violent storms because it is surrounded by mountains and is approximately 685 feet below sea level. At times, the cool air from the Mediterranean Sea comes down through the mountain passes with a fierce force and clashes violently with the hot air of the enclosed lake. But the disciples were experienced fishermen, and this kind of phenomenon was nothing new to them. What was going on here? In the first century, the sea and other deep bodies of water were considered places where evil and demons resided. Therefore, for the disciples and anybody else present, this was not just a fierce storm. It had strong evil connotations. This was not a common wind as far as they were concerned. No, sir. This was a wicked storm in the most graphic sense of the word. Mark is the only gospel writer to tell us that there were other boats. See Mark 4, 36, going through this storm, not just Jesus and the disciples. Has this ever happened to you? You get hit by an unexpected storm so fierce that you know it has come from the devil himself and you're under attack? I have, and the storm is having its effects.
The waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. Verse 37. It's not just the winds. Now you can actually see how the boat is in direct danger. The waves are rushing over the little boat, and it is filling up with water, which does not look too good. The whole thing is falling apart right in front of their very eyes, and they are powerless over it. Powerless. I don't really like that word. I like to feel in control in all situations, especially when a devastating crisis comes upon me. But in reality, that is only an illusion, because if I truly had power over it, then it wouldn't be a crisis at all. The older I get, the more I realize how little control I have over most things that surround me. And the disciples don't have power either. The situation is out of control, and they think they're going to die. Archaeologists found a boat in 1986 that is believed to be a fishing boat from the first century AD. It is now at the Yigal Along Center at Kibbutz Ginosar and is known as the Jesus Boat. This fishing boat is 27 feet long, 7.5 feet wide, and approximately 4 feet deep. Not a very big boat, to say the least. With 13 people, Jesus and his 12 disciples, in it, this size of a boat would be quite overcrowded even in calm waters. But now, in the storm, it is sinking. It is a chaotic scene. Fierce winds, waves crashing, the little boat filling up with water, the disciples trying to do everything in order to survive. Everyone is going crazy. Except one who has the gift of faith. And he is sleeping. Power Fool. Mark gives us more details than the other Gospels regarding the whereabouts of Jesus. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Verse 38. Say what? Asleep on the cushion? Are you comfortable, Jesus? Would you like us to sing you a lullaby? How in the world can you be sleeping under the circumstances? In the stern? On the cushion? Can you believe that? Well, I myself used to be quite fond of sleeping while on trips. You see, when I was a little girl, my dad was an evangelist. My dad, my mom, and I would travel very long distances sometimes. All I needed was a comfortable place to sleep. We had an itty-bitty car, very, very small, but it was big enough for me. I could stretch my four-year-old body in the back seat, and it was the perfect size. As long as my daddy was at the wheel, I could sleep comfortably. He knew where we were heading. I didn't need to worry. Daddy was in control. I wonder if that is the reason why Jesus could sleep as well. He needed to be awakened. He must have been exhausted because the fierce wind, the crashing waves, the boat sinking, and the disciples screaming had not awakened him. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Verse 38. First of all, the two verbal actions of the disciples are in the historic present tense again, which means that the original reads like this. And they awaken him and they say to him, Teacher, does it not matter to you that we're perishing? It is like we are right there, isn't it? Shaking Jesus, screaming at him. Matthew says that they uttered three desperate cries for help. The Greek words he recorded sound something like, Lord, save, perishing, Matthew 8, 25. 
But Mark adds that they also had a question. Does it not matter to you that we are perishing? Do you not care? Fear is quite paralyzing, isn't it? Fear distorts our perspective of God. When a sudden storm hits our lives, our view of Him is blocked. And many times we ask the same question. Don't you care? Of course He cares. He just has a completely different perspective on the situation. We don't see what He sees. We don't know what He knows. But it is really easy when we are overwhelmed by the circumstances to think that God doesn't care. It also happened to Martha. See Luke 10.40. When you are in doubt, look at the cross. Yep, he definitely cares. And he got up, Mark 4.39. You can almost imagine Jesus rubbing his eyes, yawning and saying, What is going on here? And all the disciples are talking at the same time, trying to explain to him that they are about to die if he doesn't do something right now. And Jesus does two amazing things. No, really, amazing things. First, he rebuked the wind. Verse 39. Rebuked! Like the wind was his child and it was misbehaving. Rebuked! Like you rebuke your dog when he's barking too loud. And then he spoke to the lake as his other misbehaving child. Hush! Be still! Verse 39. In other words, shh! Can't you see I'm taking a nap here? Be silent! Be quiet! And guess what? The wind and the sea obeyed. Oh yes, I forgot to tell you. The disciples are powerless, but not Jesus. Jesus is powerful. Why fear? In confirmation of the miracle, Mark says that the wind died down and he became perfectly calm. Verse 39. I want to share with you the ending of the verse in Greek. It says that there was a great calm. Yes, you guessed it. A mega calm. The same word used for the mega gust of wind, verse 37, now is used for the mega calm. From mega storm to mega peace. And now it is Jesus' turn to ask the questions. Having addressed the wind and the water, now he addresses the disciples. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Verse 40. Why? Isn't it obvious? Because we couldn't control it no matter what we did or tried? Because we thought we were dying? Because we are powerless? We can't stop the phone call, the medical results, or the bad news. We can't do this. See, that's where your problem is, says Jesus. You're trying to control it. I have news for you. You can't. But I have even more news for you. I can. So Jesus continues, do you still have no faith? Verse 40. This is not something you can achieve by white-knuckling. Just because you have a strong fist does not mean you are conquering your problem. It is only by faith in me, continues Jesus. So repeat after me. First, I can't. Second, God can. Third, I'll let God. They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Verse 41. The original Greek says that they were afraid with a mega phobos. 
from mega wind to mega calm to mega awe. They're having a mega day. <laughs> That's because they're in the presence of mega power. They're just discovering who Jesus is. They're just realizing that they can choose to have faith in him. Choosing faith over fear. The question, who is this, is repeated many times in the first half of Mark's gospel. The authoritative Messiah is being revealed. Even the wind and the sea obey him. Everything that is way out of our control is within his. He has power over everything under the water, which represented evil for them, and anything above it. It reminds me of Jesus' authoritative announcement at the end of Matthew. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. The truth is that in the Jewish scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, this type of total and absolute authority over the waters and the wind was an exclusive prerogative of Yahweh, Job 12, 15, Psalm 33, 7, Proverbs 34. Now Jesus is behaving exactly like God, and they are in awe. Check out Psalm 107, 23-30, written hundreds of years before Jesus walked on this earth. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens, they went down to the depths, their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Yes, Jesus is God. And they are now realizing how powerful he really is. This story is the beginning of a crescendo of Jesus' power in the Gospel of Mark. First, his power over nature. The next story is his power over evil and demons, Mark 5, 1-20. And the following two stories display his power over disease and death, verses 21-43. But the most striking realization in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus the powerful God who has authority over the wind and the sea will become the servant who will submit his life as a ransom for many. This is his greatness. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10.45 Jesus, the authoritative Messiah, would become the suffering servant he would lay down his power and conquer through suffering. The Gospel of Mark is dedicated to understanding this profound juxtaposition. The authoritative Son of God is also the suffering servant and the Son of Man. Sometimes the church is depicted in early Christian art as a boat in a storm with Jesus in it. This visualization helped early Christians under persecution to remember the presence of Jesus with them while going through trials and tribulations. This miracle reminded them of the greater reality of salvation brought about through Jesus' saving death and resurrection. Are you at your wit's end when sudden storms hit your life? You have a choice. Choose 
faith over fear. If you have a pen and paper, draw this picture. Faith, line, fear. Faith over fear. Perhaps you need to draw it several times and place it all over your house, your car, and your office. This is the visualization for faith over fear. That's your choice every minute of the day. Remember the power of the servant. He is powerful to rescue. He's powerful to save. Woo-hoo! Chapter 4, The Suffering of the Servant We needed to believe in a reality that we couldn't see. And it was our only hope. But how do you believe in something that you know is impossible? Let me explain our dilemma. My dad was a pastor in Bahia Blanca, Argentina. I was a few months old, not even a year. My parents owned a BMW, but before you get too excited about it, let me tell you that it was a BMW Isetta, probably the smallest car ever made, with only one door located in the front. If you want to have a good laugh, Google this car, and you will see what I mean. It barely had four wheels because two of them were together in the back, so it looked like a tricycle with a roof. This was quite an advance for my parents because before that, they had owned a motorcycle. I shouldn't put this car down too much because it was the only BMW my parents ever owned, and they still have fond memories of this tiniest of cars, which made them feel like a million dollars when it rained because they could actually stay dry. It was a red two-seater, which was a problem because there were three of us now. Behind the two seats at the head level, there was some space to place a small piece of luggage or a big purse. Well, you guessed it. That was my spot. So they would add some blankets and sheets, and that's where I, a baby, slept during the first few car trips of my life. One day, the three of us went to visit a church member who lived in a small village far away from the main highway. We had to go on a rough dirt road over some hills and mountains in order to get there. On the way home, it was already getting dark. Since this was a very desolate road, my dad hurried to get to a more populated area. But when we were still about 30 miles away from the main highway, something terrible happened. The little car stopped and wouldn't move anymore. As a matter of fact, the engine stopped and would not start again. In the middle of nowhere, and with dangerous darkness surrounding us, my father got out of the car with a flashlight to inspect what had happened, hoping it was a minor problem that he could easily fix. But when he came back, his face told a different story. The single contact point of the one-cylinder engine had broken off, and he was holding it in his hand. There was absolutely no way in the world for the engine to start without a spark. It was simply impossible. And he knew it. So there we were, in the middle of nowhere, with the only reality we could see. The dirt road was so remote that we were not likely to see another car there, not for many days. And I was just a baby, and my mother was running out of milk for my baby bottle. We had no food or shelter. This was bad. Very bad. But faith is the certainty of things we cannot see, 
Hebrews 11.1. 1. So my father and my mother prayed and asked for a miracle. They would need the eyes of faith to enter into another reality, one that was humanly impossible and that was even hard to imagine. They prayed to God that if it was his will, the car would start even though that was mechanically impossible. It is still with deep emotions that my dad tells the story. He describes what it feels like to turn the key in the ignition, knowing that it is not possible for the car to start unless God decides to do something miraculous, and knowing that the life of his whole family depended on the engine starting. An impossible reality that we could not see was our only hope. So he turned the key and the car started. We were able to travel those 30 miles through the hills on the dirt road, but as soon as we reached the highway, the engine stopped again and the car wouldn't move one more inch. But by then we were in an area with quite a bit of traffic and were able to take a bus home. This is one of the miracles that our family will always remember. We know that God did something supernatural for us that day and we will never forget it. As a matter of fact, we often recall it when we come upon obstacles that seem insurmountable. We remember that there is a second reality, visible only through the eyes of faith and accessible only through belief. This is the chapter that will reveal the greatest second reality of all times, a reality so impossible to believe that the disciples would need new sight, the eyes of faith, to comprehend what Jesus was trying to tell them. Training for new sight. There is a fascinating section in the Gospel of Mark that contains a succession of two steps teachings of Jesus. There is the first reality understood by all who witness the enacted teachings, and then there is a second reality that Jesus adds to their understanding by explaining something only accessible through faith. This section is found in Mark 6 to 8. And we will analyze three of those two-step teachings leading up to the greatest revelation of all time. The first step relates to the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000. The narrative starts with Jesus teaching a large crowd in a desolate place and it gets quite late. It is time to eat, Mark 6, 34 and 35. He says to his disciples, you give them something to eat, verse 37. The disciples tell him that this is impossible and that they can only find five loaves of bread and two fish. Verse 38. The Gospel of Mark tells us that they sat down in groups of fifties and hundreds. Verse 40. Jesus then does something very important and unexpected. He multiplies the bread. There are four verbs that the reader will re-encounter later on in the bread plot. He takes the loaves, he blesses them, he breaks the loaves and he gives them to the disciples. The disciples then give the bread to the crowds, verse 41. In the conclusion, it says they all ate and were satisfied and they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves, verses 41 to 43. The setting of this event is given in social, political and religious terms, which are mainly found in the words and numbers used. The numbers 5 and 12 were representative of the Jewish culture. 5 was the number of the books in the law, Torah, and there were 12 tribes in Israel. In this story, there are 5 loaves of bread, 5,000 men fed, and 12 full baskets left. 
There is enough bread for the Jews to be satisfied, and there are leftovers, a full basket for each tribe. The Greek word used for baskets in this story is kofinos, a type of basket usually associated with the Jews. When everyone is fed and satisfied, Jesus orders them to go to the other side. Verse 45. This was the first reality the disciples understood. Jesus was a Jew and he came for the Jews. But there was more for them to understand, and there would be a second step to this teaching. In the Gospel of Mark, the other side is a loaded phrase that means outsiders. And that was an unthinkable reality. Is Jesus going to the other side? The second step of this teaching happens on the other side. Jesus has decided to feed the others as well. Mark 8, 1-10 Jesus asks them how many loaves they have, and they answer seven. Verse 5, Jesus directs the people to sit down on the ground, and once again we encounter four verbs. He takes the seven loaves of bread, he gives thanks, instead of blessing them as he did in the first feeding, he breaks them and he gives them to the disciples who give them to the people. Verse 6, the report is the same as in the previous feeding, only the numbers and the word used for baskets have changed. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, verses 8 and 9. Yes, they ate and were satisfied, and there were leftovers. In this story, the numbers have changed from 5 and 12 to 7 and 4. These numbers represent those on the other side. The number 4 is used to highlight people who come from the four corners of the earth, from the four cardinal points. In the non-Jewish or Gentile geographical setting, seven symbolizes one basket per pagan nation displayed by Israel in the land of Canaan. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance. Acts 13.19 Seven is used in other Hellenistic settings, such as the choosing of the seven deacons with Greek names in Acts 6.1-6 in response to the accusation of the Hellenistic Jews. Verse 1 the word for baskets is spuris, Mark 8.8, as opposed to kofinos in the previous feeding, Mark 6.43. The first word is befitting of a Gentile audience, while the latter was regularly associated with the Jews. Just in case his readers miss that this is a two-step, two-realities teaching, Mark adds the summary that Jesus brought up to his disciples. Having eyes do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets, kofinos, full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets, spuris, full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Mark 8, 18 to 21. Jesus summarized the two miracles for them, letting them know that there was something extra for them to understand, a second reality to be accepted by faith. Towards the end of this gospel, the full mystery of the ongoing bread riddle is revealed. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. Mark 14.22, emphasis added. The mystery is revealed. The bread is his broken body. This revelation is preceded by verbs now recognized by the reader. He took, 
he blessed, thanked, he broke, and he gave, as he had done in both feedings. The mystery solved. The sacrifice of Jesus is for all. There is enough for Jews and for Gentiles. For the 5,000 and the 4,000, there are small baskets, cofinos, and there are large baskets, spuris, filled with broken bread. All can be satisfied with the provision made on the cross. And there are leftovers for the 12 tribes of Israel and the seven pagan nations. This is truly good news. The scope of the good news is greater than anyone imagined. There is enough bread for those on one side of the lake as there is for those on the other side. But there is more. Wait, there's more? How do you train the human heart to believe in what cannot be seen, especially when you're holding the broken pieces of your only solution in your hand, just like my dad was holding the broken car part? When things took a very difficult turn in my life, many years ago, I wrote a poem. It was entitled, The Vase. And it started by saying that the vase of my life had fallen and that now the pieces of my life were lying on the floor. It was a very touching poem. As I wrote it, I found my strength in the Lord like David used to find in his Psalms of Lament. I finished it with a statement of faith. I would trust the artisan of my life to put the vase back together and to make the vase stronger than before it had fallen to the floor. I needed to believe that there was a second reality, one that I couldn't see. I needed a different kind of sight, the eyes of faith. Many years have passed since then, and I stand amazed at God's ability to cause all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8, 28. Do you need to see beyond what you now see? Do you need more insight? A heavenly perspective with clearer sight? Following the two-step enacted teaching of Jesus and his summary regarding the bread feeding, Mark records a strange miracle, not recorded by any other gospel writer. It is also a two-step enacted teaching used to introduce the greatest revelation of all time. It is a short narrative, and now that you know the context, you will be able to understand it clearly. This is the story. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Mark 8, 22-26 Jesus' miracles taught deeper truths than just physical healing. This is the case with this two-step enacted parable. When people ignore the context of this miracle, they come up with the strangest interpretations of this text. But the truth is, that this two-step miracle highlights the need for clearer sight. After this miracle, the true reality of Jesus' identity and mission will be revealed in two steps, and it surpasses what anyone had imagined or thought possible. This two-step miracle contains three unparalleled elements not found in any of the other miracles of Jesus recorded in the Gospels.
First, Jesus asks the blind man a question regarding the effectiveness of the first part of the miracle. Do you see anything? Verse 23. Second, the blind man responds with reference to a partial healing because he had been given partial sight. I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Verse 24. Third, Jesus lays hands on him for a second time, resulting in complete restoration of sight. Verse 25. From there on, the formerly blind man began to see everything clearly. This is a fascinating miracle, and it serves the purpose of introducing the next section, where Jesus will reveal more clearly the depth of his mission as the Messiah. Throughout the Bible, sight has been a metaphor for salvation. Isaiah 29, 18, 35, 5, Psalm 146, 8. The four songs of the suffering servant in Isaiah, recorded in chapters 42, 49, 50, and 53, in which God starts revealing his promises concerning his coming servant, begin by mentioning that the servant would be a light to the nations, opening blind eyes. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. The disciples had a limited understanding of who Jesus was. They possessed partial sight. Jesus was about to open their eyes to a second reality, a deeper understanding of his mission, one that they never imagined because it was unthinkable. The Unthinkable Reality The 2012 tornado season in the United States has been, so far, particularly deadly. Many lost their lives as their homes were completely destroyed by massive tornadoes. Entire families will never be the same because of the loss of their loved ones. But there was one particular story that caught my attention in a special way. Stephanie Decker was at home with her two children when the first tornado hit in Henryville, Indiana. There was no time for her to take the children to a shelter. Risking her life, she covered them with her own body. The flying debris broke seven of her ribs. Then two large steel beams fell on her, almost completely severing both of her legs. The 36-year-old mother, even though badly injured, remained in that position throughout the second tornado a few minutes later, as their house was leveled. Her husband, Joe, gives an emotional witness to her motherly love. Anybody that knows her has no doubt that that's what she'd do. Both of her legs became casualties of the storm, but her children didn't. The children didn't suffer as much as the scratch, and Stephanie smiles with satisfaction because it was all worth it. In this section, Jesus reveals for the first time the unthinkable reality of his suffering and eventual death on behalf of his children. Oh, Jesus, how could you love me so much? As we discussed in the first chapter of this booklet, the Gospel of Mark may be divided into two large sections that ask specific questions. The question repeated in the first half is, who is this? We have now arrived at the pivotal moment when the identity of Jesus is revealed in the overall narrative, and the second part of the Gospel begins. Jesus himself asks the question that has been echoed throughout the first eight chapters of Mark. 
Who do people say that I am? Mark 8.27 This dialogue follows after the pivotal circle that we have drawn in our narrative structure. See the graphic on page 11. This is the moment everyone has been waiting for, and we're all holding our breath to hear the answer. But the answer that comes from the disciples is like trees walking. It is a very limited understanding. It is not clear sight yet. People knew that Jesus was a special person with a divine anointing and knowledge, something like a prophet from old. And that was true. But there was so much more. They told him, saying, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. Verse 28. But Jesus kept probing them. He wanted to know what they themselves believed. But who do you say that I am? Verse 29. Emphasis added. To this inquiry, Peter, who usually had all the answers, or so he thought, responded to Jesus with what he thought was the clearest insight of all. You are the Christ. Verse 29. The term Christ is the Greek term for anointed, the same term as Messiah in the Hebrew language. Because of its political connotations in the first century, Jesus rarely used it. Mark himself identifies Jesus with this term at the very beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark 1, 1. But the term carried a particular expectation. An anointed person who would come as a religious and political leader with power to deliver his people from their oppressors. Yes, it was true. The authority of Jesus had been thoroughly demonstrated in his mighty acts until then, and he definitely was anointed by God. Therefore, Peter thought he had the complete picture, the full reality, the clearest sight, but he didn't. There was more, much more. And that is why it is so important that the two-step miracle of sight precedes this section. Jesus is about to give them full sight so that they too may begin to see everything clearly. The following pivotal verse, which contains the first revelation of its type in this gospel, initiates the second half of Mark. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark 8, 31. Excuse me? What did you say? I'm sorry, I don't understand. At that moment, these questions were written all over the faces of the disciples. What do you mean? How can the Christ be killed? He's the deliverer. Has he not come to conquer? No, this can't be. No way. And a resurrection. What does that mean? We don't understand anything, Jesus. What are you talking about? That is why Mark will devote the second half of his book to explaining this other reality. Jesus was not only the authoritative son of God. He was also the suffering servant the Son of Man who would die in the place of humanity and be raised from the dead. This was an unthinkable reality, but all of our lives depended on it. The first announcement of his death, usually called the first passion prediction, was so shocking to Peter that the same devoted disciple who had just announced that Jesus was the Christ 
now becomes an instrument of Satan to deter Jesus from the cross. Peter starts rebuking Jesus because the clear and astonishing truth that he had just given them was too hard to swallow. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Verses 32 and 33. I think it is so interesting how Peter tries to control that which he can't fully comprehend. I identify with Peter so much. My default reaction when I get scared is to try to control the situation with what I believe to be the appropriate, quotation marks, response. But this reality could be accepted only by faith, not by force. Jesus had come to deliver humankind from sin, but his victory would be achieved through suffering, and he would give life to others through his own death. And this reality could only be seen by faith. The disciples, especially Peter, struggled with this newly given insight, quotation marks, until after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Some still struggle today. Oh, say, can you see? And there it was, exposed for the whole world to see clearly, the truth beyond logical comprehension. Jesus had come to die, not just to show love or power, but to suffer. He would be many things for us, our leader, our model, our powerful God. But primarily, he had come to be our savior. And for that, he would become a servant, the suffering servant. Mark 8.31 is the first of three passion predictions where Jesus clearly tells his disciples that he would suffer much that he would die, and that he would be resurrected on the third day. The subsequent predictions are found in Mark 9.31 and 10.33 and 34. Please take a moment to read them. Immediately preceding the key verse in the whole Gospel of Mark, Mark 10.45, Jesus explained to his disciples how he came to overturn the value structure of this world. Even though Jesus kept talking about his suffering and death, the disciples were still arguing about who would be the most important in the kingdom. Read Mark 10, 35-41. These poor, clueless disciples, we resemble them so much, don't we? Jesus calls them to himself and explains how differently things work in the community of his followers. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercised authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Verses 42 to 44. What a radical concept. The servant leader. Discipleship has always been and will always be a reversal of values in light of the cross. Lording over people? No, that's not the way among Christians. The climactic key verse in Mark is chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus explains why he will die. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Yes, Jesus was the suffering servant described in the Jewish scriptures. 
Take a moment to read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many. Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. He would give his life as a ransom for us. There are three very important words recorded at the end of Mark 10.45. The word ransom was used for the price to be paid for a release, in this case, our release. The word for is in place of, and it foreshadows Christ's substitutionary death in our place. The word many is used to describe the outcome. One death would give life to many. The substitutionary death of Christ in place of humankind, in other words, one for many, became a core doctrine in the first century church. Romans 5, 18 and 19. So, can we see? Can you see? If you are to live with the assurance of salvation, then you must enter the second reality. The reality we can see with our regular eyes is not very encouraging. We hold the broken pieces in our hands, and we know there is no way this can work. So, many Christians live their lives contemplating the broken parts, quotation marks, and find many reasons to perpetuate fear of eternal doom. But those who live with anxiety for the future only have partial sight. They know there is a God who is authoritative and powerful. They even might know that He's coming back for us, but that is only partial sight. It's like seeing trees walking. It is only when you accept the reality of Jesus' suffering and sacrifice in your place that you start seeing clearly, and the joy of your salvation becomes a reality. I want to extend to you an invitation right now. Pause and ask Jesus to give you full sight. Ask Him to reveal to you, in the core of your soul, that your kinsman Redeemer has paid your ransom. That when you believe in Jesus' death and resurrection, you have eternal life. This is the second reality available only through faith. Let's appropriate this understanding right now. Fill in the blank with your name. Take a chance and read it aloud. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for blank. Mark 10.45, emphasis added. So, can you see him now? Then you can see clearly. Woo-hoo! Chapter 5, The Zeal of the Servant I can't believe that I'm about to tell you one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. Have you ever been so surprised by the unexpected outcome of an incident that you respond in a totally atypical way, baffling those around you and yourself? Before I describe what happened to me, let me tell you a bit about my younger self. All along my booklets, I have been sharing with you many faults and mishaps from my youth. But there is one thing that I haven't told you yet. Overall, I was a really honest kid. I always told the truth, almost compulsively. 
I wanted to have a clear conscience and I was a little bit hypersensitive when it came to being right with God and my parents. For example, every night when I went to bed, I would ask my parents to forgive me for everything that I had done that day that wasn't right. Those things I knew about and those I didn't know about. I wanted to go to bed in peace, so I would go through their ritual of a blanket apology, meant to cover anything that might have been left unaccounted for. And even though I had already done so, once the lights went off, I would yell once again from my bedroom, just in case. Do you forgive me for everything? Sometimes I would even repeat the same question several times. Now I think there was some obsessive compulsive behavior in my actions, but it worked for me at the time. When it came to telling the truth, I often experienced the same compulsion. I wouldn't want to jeopardize my inner peace with anything, not even a little white lie, not even a joke. I had to give you this background information so that you can understand what follows. A most embarrassing moment. At the time of my story, I am already a young woman, and several family members have gathered in my aunt's home for a celebration. My parents are there too. Suddenly, I notice a somewhat deflated helium balloon and I grab it. My dad is sitting next to me and I ask him if he has ever heard a voice changed by inhaled helium. Kids, please don't try this at home. My father says that he hasn't. So I find myself with a golden opportunity, a rare chance for a child to teach something to her father. So I grab the balloon and inhale as deeply as possible in order to fill my lungs with the helium. But something unexpected happens. When I try to speak, my voice is still normal, not the high-pitched cartoony tone that I was expecting. But it is too late. My pride is on the line, and I can't let myself down this way in front of my dad. There comes a time when a woman has to do what a woman has to do. So I open my mouth and start talking in a fake high-pitched voice that sounds more like an extraterrestrial creature than a human voice affected by helium. My dad looks at me somewhat puzzled as I am trying to explain that this is the effect of helium on the vocal cords. But the truth is that I am quite puzzled myself about why the helium does not work. And I am puzzled even more about my own unusual behavior so out of character. I inhale again, trying to prove my point. Yet nothing happens, and I do the same thing again. I talk in a strange, cartoony voice so that I can teach my dad something new about life. Interesting, quotation marks, he says, trying to give me a way out with dignity. But we're both puzzled, and that is the end of it. Or so I think. A few minutes later, my aunt comes in and begins chatting about the exact balloon that I had just used for my helium voice. Quotation marks. It is such a nice balloon. Unfortunately, it totally deflated as it was leaking helium. I did not want to lose a balloon like that and just blew some air in it so that I can still display it. But it does look a little deflated, doesn't it? Oh, what a beautiful balloon. My dad looks at me and I look at him. But I can't back off. Not anymore. This is called an escalation of commitment. 
Oh, I respond to his buffled look, throwing my hands up in air. There must have been at least some of the helium left in that balloon to change my voice. Hmm, my dad replies. However, I can't hold it much longer. A few minutes later, I realize that I have totally lost my inner peace and I just have to go back to my dad to fess up. My tears and laughter accompany the confession of my lies. I can't believe what has happened to me. I guess my defeated expectations about my little demonstration had thrown me for a loop. And therefore, I had acted totally out of character. Both my dad and I were stunned. My dad started laughing and I cried some more. And then the whole family learned what had happened. In this chapter, we will study together one of the most unusual, atypical, and strange responses of Jesus when something didn't turn out as expected. It is so unusual that it baffles the disciples and even some audiences until today. But unlike me, Jesus had a very good reason for acting in this uncharacteristic manner. He was teaching them and us a very valuable principle of the kingdom of God. Jesus are you feeling okay? Lately, Jesus had been behaving strangely when compared to his previous record of public ministry. Mark 11.1 1 starts a new section in this gospel, one that inaugurates Jesus' Passion Week, and he seems to be enacting unexpected messianic actions. The first one, narrated in Mark 11.1-10, is regularly called the Triumphant Entry in which Jesus seems to knowingly announce himself as the coming Davidic king, the expected Messiah. Please take a moment to review this unusual symbolic action that would surely provoke the Jewish authorities. During this week, which was a Passover week, Jesus seems to have come to Jerusalem every day, retreating to Bethany with his disciples only for the night, then making his way back to Jerusalem the next morning. Verse 11. On the morning of our story, Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem from Bethany, and we are told that he became hungry. Verse 12. But the answer to his need appears to be close at hand. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Verse 13. We are clearly told that it was not the season for figs. But this particular tree had the appearance of fruit, being that it already had leaves, and sometimes early figs were found along with the leaves. The conditional phrase found in the original Greek, ara, translated whether or if perhaps, highlights the fact that it was unlikely that Jesus would find figs at this time. Nevertheless, he went and found nothing except leaves. He should not have been surprised with such a finding, because it was to be expected, even though the appearance of fruit had raised his hopes. All of a sudden, Jesus, meek and mild, turns into Jesus, mean and wild. Mark Galli uses this phrase as the title of his book, The Study's Troubling Passages in the Gospel of Mark. Right in front of our eyes. In what seems to be the most rushed and angry response of Jesus to the simple fact that the fig tree had no fruit, as it was expected, Jesus makes a disturbing pronouncement. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Verse 14. I almost feel like 
I have to write that whole sentence in capital letters. Jesus appears to be so irrationally angry that he uses his power to perpetuate the current fruitless condition of the tree forever. No one will ever eat from you, you useless tree, Jesus seems to be saying. Jesus, are you feeling okay? Since when do you respond like this? With such violent disappointment, so out of character for your peaceful self. The verse ends by saying, and his disciples were listening. Verse 14. You bet they were. They've never seen Jesus like this before. They're absolutely stunned. Before you decide that we need to send Jesus to a self-help anger management group, let me share some information that hopefully will illuminate our interpretation of this event. In the prophetic utterances of the Jewish scriptures, the fig tree represented Israel as the nation chosen by God to be his light in the world, especially the earliest fruit on it, Hosea 9, 10 and 16. But when Israel was not fulfilling God's purpose to represent him to the nations, God spoke against them in terms of a dried up tree. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Hosea 9, 10 and 16. By now, we start realizing that Jesus is using the fruitless fig tree situation to teach his disciples and us a very important lesson. His response is no longer about his hunger or his anger. His hunger is not even mentioned in his pronouncement in Mark eleven fourteen, but it's all about religious hypocrisy and God's purpose for his people as representatives of a loving God. In one of Mark's famous sandwich intercalations, the gospel writer will aid our interpretation of this story by interrupting it at this point, inserting the narration of Jesus' cleansing of the temple after which he comes back to the fig tree. Intercalations in the Gospels are used as mutual commentaries, helping us to understand that both stories relate to each other and explain each other. Could it be that Jesus is using the fruitless fig tree to enact a parable? Could this be a symbolic action performed just like those by the Old Testament prophets? Let's see if we can understand his unusual response. This is how Mark tells us both stories. Intercalation, Mark 11, 12 to 21. Fig tree, 11, 12 to 14. Temple cleansing, 11, 15 to 19. Fig tree, 11, 20 and 21. Religion gone bad. If you think that Jesus' response to the fruitless fig tree was strange, wait till you hear what happens next. Following his unusual outburst, Jesus and his disciples came to Jerusalem, Mark eleven fifteen. Jesus went into the temple as he had done many times before. But this time we encounter the one and only demonstration of violence in all his public ministry. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Verses 15 and 16. Wait, wait, wait a minute. What's up with Jesus today? Why is he acting this way? 
everyone is baffled. We are told that he performs four very specific actions. First, he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. Verse 15. Up to the year A.D. 30, the markets for the sacrificial animals were located exclusively on the Mount of Olives, and they were under the control of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling group. But around this time, the high priest appears to have authorized the setting up of markets in the outer courts of the temple, creating a competitive, business-like atmosphere. Jesus showed his disgust regarding this utterly profane use of the temple. Second, he overturned the tables of the money changers, verse 15. This is an interesting detail. In Jesus' time, the annual temple tax was paid in temple currency, Exodus 30, 13-16. Therefore, other coinage from different geographical areas had to be exchanged for this purpose. Usually, the tax exchange tables were set up for five days before the tax was due. There might have been other exchange tables for the purpose of purchasing animals, but we don't have much ancient data on that. Third, Jesus overturned the seats of those who were selling doves, verse 15. Pigeons were the sacrifices available for poor people, and there were specific times and reasons for their use. Fourth, and this is hard to imagine, Jesus sets a post in the court and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Verse 16. Only Mark gives us this very interesting detail. Can you imagine Jesus with his hand up, prohibiting people from carrying merchandise through the temple courts? Isn't this unusual, strange, and atypical for the loving Jesus of the Gospels? Maps of ancient Jerusalem shed some light into what is really going on here. A shortcut had been created between the Mount of Olives and the city. The shortcut went through the temple court of the Gentiles. If this route was not available, merchants would have to go around the temple, which was quite a significant structure erected by Herod the Great. The Gospel of John tells us that when the disciples saw Jesus cleansing the temple, they recalled a verse from their Bibles. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. John 2.17 This is a quotation from Psalm 69.9. But still, why was Jesus behaving this way, being so zealous, acting so violently, so out of his regular character? Salvation is for all. The truth is that the temple had become like the barren fig tree. Outwardly, it appeared like an impressive religious structure, a holy place for God to reside and meet with His people. But in reality, it had become a fruitless institution. God has never tolerated religious pride and hypocrisy, and He never will. The very place that He had designed to reveal His grace and welcome the contrite-hearted had become a sacrilegious, self-centered, business-like, crooked, and proud institution. The ultimate blasphemy is an empty, self-sufficient, hypercritical religious system with the appearance of piety. Talk about a fake religion. Just in case anyone missed what he was doing, Jesus began to teach them what this was all about. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? 
but you have made it a robber's den. Mark eleven seventeen. Mark quotes more fully than the other Gospels the citations from the Jewish scriptures that Jesus used to explain his zeal, and in doing so helps us interpret the heart of the matter. The first part of Jesus' teaching comes from Isaiah 56, 7. Mark includes the words, for all the nations, not included in the other Gospels. Jesus was protecting the original intention for which the temple was designed. Everyone was welcome to come to pray and worship the God of heaven and earth. Even those who had not become Jews were welcome. But the religious leaders of the day, with no regards for all the nations, quotation marks, had taken the only place where non-Jews could worship and had turned it into a marketplace, and a shady one at that. No God-fearer could be at peace with God in that noisy and crazy place, and Jesus was defending them. I absolutely love it. Just like a zealous mother defends her children, Jesus is defending the right of everyone in the world to come as they are to receive his blessing. No religious institution was ever created by God for any other purpose, only to bless, not to curse, to heal, not to shame, to serve, not to lord, to receive, not to throw out. If you have been hurt by someone preventing you from coming into the church and worshiping because you didn't seem to qualify, I apologize to you. Jesus made it very clear that day. All seekers are welcome in his presence, even those who don't think or look exactly like us. The second citation comes from Jeremiah 7.11. This place no longer resembled God's original plan. Now it was a place of filth and shameful dealings. It was a cave of thieves. As you can imagine, the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Mark eleven eighteen. It has happened throughout history, and it still happens today sometimes. When ungodly leaders are exposed as not doing the will of God, they try to destroy those who are speaking for the values of God. But even though it might look like they prevail for a time, Jesus is still the defender of the weak. Do not despair. He knows all things and hates religious hypocrisy. Now through Jesus' symbolic action, God was taken over and the priests and scribes would no longer represent him to the world. Just like in Ezekiel 34. Take a moment to read the prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. It is a great and weighty task to be placed in a position of leadership in the kingdom of God. We are his representatives. The greater the influence, the stricter the accountability that will be required of us. O oh Lord, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. But the leaders were afraid because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Mark eleven eighteen. Finally, someone was speaking on their behalf and saying all the things they had been thinking. After a full day of teaching activity, you can say that again, Jesus and the disciples went out of the city, probably back to Bethany. Verses 11, 12. And 19. The conclusion of these episodes will be highlighted the next morning.
What about the fig tree? The appearance, quotation marks, of fruit was no longer acceptable, and God's zeal had decided that it was time. Just in case someone didn't realize that the two enacted teachings were related, Mark tells us that, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Verses 20 and 21. Yes, the destruction was total, nothing to be salvaged. From the roots up, the whole thing. We're told that Peter interpreted that what Jesus had said back in verse 14 was not just a prophecy, but a curse. Now Israel, the fig tree of God, is withered. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit, like in the time of the prophets. Hosea 9.16 In chapter 12, Mark will narrate another parable that Jesus told regarding a vineyard in response to the inquiry of the chief priests, scribes, and elders challenging his authority to do what he had done. The grapevine was the other plant that represented Israel throughout the prophetic oracles. Take a moment to read this parable in Mark 12, 1-12, comparing it with the description of Israel in Isaiah 5, 1 and 2. In the parable, Jesus exposes the fate of the vine growers. He, the owner of the vineyard, will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Verse 9. And guess what? They were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. Verse 12. There was the same reaction to this parable as to the previous symbolic action. Destroy Jesus. By Mark 13, 1 and 2, a prophecy of the temple's destruction is revealed. This religious system was not officially representing God any longer. The true Lamb of God had come and all symbols would meet their substance. Yes, it is true. Just like I did in the introductory story, Jesus was acting in an unusual and atypical manner that left everyone around him scratching their heads. The disciples, the chief priests, the scribes, and the crowd. Unlike me, he had a good reason for it. He had turned from meek and mild to mean and wild because he's the defender of the poor and the oppressed. He wants his church to have a welcome mat for all nations, for all genders, for all accents, and for all colors. God is greater than any group or any structure, and he won't put up with any appearance, quotation marks, of love. He's a real thing, and whoever doesn't represent his grace is against him, no matter what they're called. No one can fool God. He's a defender of his children. He's for you and not against you. Whoever does not speak in graceful and inclusive terms has a fake voice. And I don't mean the high-pitched cartoony voice that comes from inhaling helium. Chapter 6. The Covenant of the Servant It was a beautiful sunny day and my husband, Patrick, was walking a friend of his to the office on a long bridge above the busy Panamericana, a high-speed freeway in the city of Buenos Aires. The wide bridge was designed for cars, but he also had a pedestrian walkway with an approximately four feet high metal barrier on the side of the bridge. Halfway across the bridge, 
they noticed a man with a distressed look on his face, standing at the side of the bridge. Having noticed the unusual expression in the man's eyes, when Patrick arrived at the next corner, he turned around to see if the man was okay. As he looked, the man was swinging one of his legs over the railing. Patrick started running back. When he got to the stranger, he had already managed to swing his other leg over the barrier and was now standing on the outer side of it, ready to jump down into the busy traffic below. Now nothing was keeping this man from jumping, and the traffic below was so fast and busy that the fall would mean a sure death. Without one second to spare, my husband grabbed this man with both arms from behind and held him as firmly as possible. The metal barrier was between them, but it was short enough for Patrick to be able to lock his own hands around the man's chest, preventing him from jumping. The man kept screaming, let me go, let me go. But Patrick would not let him go. He kept telling him, God loves you, God loves you. Time froze as they wrestled, the man toward death and Patrick toward life. After a few minutes, the man realized that Patrick was not about to let him go, and he started crying, explaining that he had not been able to purchase milk for his baby girl for the last three days. He was desperate, with no money and no way out. Eventually, he made his way back to Patrick's side, and sobbing, he told him that he was a Christian but that he had become too desperate to think straight. He was helpless and hopeless. His Christian community had been praying for him, and now he believed that Patrick had been sent by God as an answer to those prayers. My husband gave him all the money he had in his wallet, approximately $30, so that he might go buy milk for his baby. They went to the bus stop, and Patrick waited until this man got on the bus and left. When this desperate man had lost his ability to hang in there, God held on to him with a strong grip, in this case, through Patrick's arms. In this chapter, we will analyze one of the most inspiring and amazing stories in the Gospels. It is one that I come back to time and time again, especially when I feel I have failed God. This story clearly demonstrates that when we think we have gone too far, we find out that God's arms are long enough to reach out and save us. But really, who needs a savior? Peter is the most colorful character among the disciples, and the gospel writers mention him many times throughout their narratives. Mark is no exception. But there's one chapter in the Gospel of Mark where we find Peter's name nine times, more than in any other chapter in this gospel. We will start our story here in Mark 14.22. It is one of the most meaningful times between Jesus and his disciples, and it's the moment when Jesus explains that the Passover feast was a symbol of his death. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
verses 22 to 25. When Jesus was taking the Passover meal, a memorial of redemption instituted back in Exodus 12, he unraveled the mystery contained in this symbolic feast, that the story of redemption from Egypt was foreshadowing his own death. As the blood of the unblemished lamb applied to the lintel and the two doorposts, Exodus 12, 21-27, had kept them safe from death, so now they are to understand that Jesus himself is the Passover lamb, whose blood of the covenant is poured out as a ransom for many. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Mark 10, 45. After these incredible revelations, they sing a hymn and go out to the Mount of Olives, Mark 14, 26. Then Jesus makes the strangest announcement. You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Mark 14, 27 and 28, emphasis added. Stop, stop, stop right there. What did you say, Jesus? Please say it slowly so that I can understand. What do you mean by you will all fall away? Are you saying that we will all stumble tonight? That we will all abandon you at your darkest hour? Can you imagine what was going on in the disciples' minds? How about in your mind? Well, let me tell you what is going on in my mind. What kind of a God is this? Who makes a covenant to give his life as a ransom for people that he knows are going to fail him? Don't you agree that this is unheard of? When, through your marriage vows, you made a covenant with your spouse and your spouse said he or she would be faithful, didn't you expect him or her to be faithful? In one of the most unbelievable juxtapositions recorded in the Bible, Jesus is saying that his blood of the covenant would be poured out and at the same time, he's saying that his own disciples would abandon him. Then he goes on. But. I love God's buts. They give us a way out. They extend grace for the lost. They offer another chance. But. After I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Verse 28, emphasis added. What? You will still want to see us? Even if we failed you? Seriously, what kind of God are you, Jesus? I will not. And there goes Peter with his big mouth. Okay, Jesus, maybe some of the weaklings among the disciples might need a savior like that, you know, for failing people. But I am Peter, and that's not going to happen to me. No way, Jose. This is the actual scriptural version. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Verse 29. I will not. Read my lips. I'm not one of those weak ones. I am Peter. Here's my business card. I'm the exception, okay? Don't ever mention this to me again. I am a strong disciple. I am a leader. Oh, Peter, Peter. Oh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. You don't really know yourself, do you? And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. Verse 30. 
Peter, Peter, you are so arrogant, thinking that you are the exception. Let me spell it out for you. This very night, not two years from now, but this very night, you, yourself, yes, you, did you get that? It's you, not just the disciples, quotation marks, as a collective noun, but you. Yes, you will deny me, not only once or twice, but three times. And that's all going to happen tonight. And that's a prophecy. Peter was beyond himself at this offense. Didn't Jesus know him? What about all those years that they had been together? Didn't Jesus know how loyal he was? Now he wants to let him know that he's ready for the worst. Back in Mark 8.32, Peter was not even ready to accept that Jesus' death was a reality. Now he's ready to accept it and to join him if necessary just to prove his loyalty. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Mark 14.31 It was unthinkable for him. He was never going to be that desperate to abandon his master. He could match Jesus' own fate. But Jesus even provided a time frame for the future failure of his committed disciple. Before the second crowing of the rooster, that signaled the approaching dawn, Peter would have already denied Jesus three times. This is how thoroughly he would deny him. This is how complete his failure would be. Luke adds an interesting detail. Jesus told Simon Peter that he had been praying for him and tells him the content of his prayer. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you, plural, like wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular, that your faith may not fail. And you, singular, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Luke 22, 31 and 32. Notice the pronouns. First, Jesus reports that Satan has asked to sift the disciples. You is plural. Then Jesus adds, but I have prayed for you, singular. And this prayer actually pierces my heart. Jesus is not praying that Peter may not abandon him or may not dishonor him publicly. He is praying that not Peter, but Peter's faith may not fail. That even though he will find himself lacking, he might find enough faith in Jesus to return and still become a source of strength for his brothers. Jesus is praying that Peter may know that God's arms are long enough to save him. Now back to the original question. So, Peter, who needs a savior? I do. But Peter can only answer us through his tears. His denial of Jesus is narrated in detail at the end of the same chapter where he so adamantly denied the possibility of denial. Peter's downward spiral story is picked up again by Mark in chapter 14, verse 66. It would only take seven verses to describe one of the most complete failures in the history of the followers of Jesus. Poor Peter, he really meant well. He really thought this wouldn't happen. He really trusted in his strength, but he failed. Peter's desire to stay close to Jesus is commendable. 
When Jesus is taken to the high priest's house, Peter follows at a distance, and he starts warming himself at the fire in the courtyard, verse 54. But while Jesus is beaten and spit upon, below in the courtyard, a servant girl of the high priest recognizes Peter. The suffering of Jesus is no longer a prediction. Now it is a reality. This is not a hypothetical scenario. Now it's the real thing. And Peter can probably hear some things through the window openings of the building. While Jesus is interrogated, so is Peter. You also were with Jesus the Nazarene, verse 67. Peter denies it. The format of his denial is a formal legal denial used in rabbinic law. I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. Verse 68, emphasis added. The charge was that Peter was with Jesus. In denying it, he refuses to acknowledge his relationship with Jesus. Then Peter went to another part of the house, the forecourt or porch. Verse 68. Maybe he thought that by changing his location, his anxiety for his own safety would subside. But fear, as anxiety, is something you carry with you, even if you go to the end of the earth. Therefore, he did not find relief. As a matter of fact, the girl saw him again and started talking with others about him. This is one of them, verse 69. Yes, them referred to the group Peter was part of and whose leader was Jesus. Obviously, this group had been together long enough and publicly enough to be recognized as such. But Peter had thought that he was the exception to them, quotation marks. He thought they, quotation marks, might abandon Jesus, but not him, quotation marks. Now he denies even association with them, quotation marks, verse 70. This is the second denial. But now his reaction has raised the interest of the bystanders who recognize the Galilean accent and are certain that he's a follower of the Galilean master. Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too, verse 70. Now, Peter pulls out all the stops and starts cursing or putting himself under a curse, saying that he definitely does not know this man. I do not know this man you're talking about, verse 71. Emphasis added. The absence of the name Jesus replaced by this man, quotation marks, is deliberately used to signal his distance from the one who, at this very time, is being blindfolded, mocked, and told to prophesy. Verse 65. Well, Jesus had already prophesied a few hours before, and his prophecy had come true. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time. Verse 72. In Jerusalem, they had observed that the rooster crowed three times, between midnight and 3 a.m. The first time was approximately half an hour after midnight, and then two more times in one hour intervals. We're told that after the first denial, the rooster crowed, verse 68, and after the third denial, he crowed again. Within one hour, Peter had destroyed everything he believed in. Just one hour. Sometimes that's all it takes. One forbidden kiss, a one-night stand, one violent push, one angry insult, one denial, and you lose everything. 
And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Verse 72. He remembered that Jesus knew better and had invited him to keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. Verse 38. But he was too strong for that, too confident, too sure. Now his grief and remorse have taken over and he weeps. What a blessed experience to see yourself in a true light. When you hit the bottom and realize your true condition, that's when you can allow life-changing help in your life. Before that, you think you have it all and are in need of nothing. Revelation 3, 17 and 18. It's at the bottom when we realize we do need a savior. And Peter now sobs, I do, I do, I do need a savior. His arms are strong enough. Many years ago, while I was going through really troublesome times, I received an encouraging card. The statement in the front caught my attention. All you need is another card telling you to hang in there. Yeah, that's all I need, I thought, as my eyes settled on a little lamb hanging from something that wasn't visible on the cover, with sweat dripping from its brow. I turned the cover to read the message on the inside, which has stayed with me until today. I want to tell you that you are safe in his grip, and he is not going to let you go. A strong hand was holding the little lamb, just like that man who could no longer hang in there, but Patrick wouldn't let him go. And Jesus wouldn't let Peter go either, even though Peter thought he had gone too far. The truth is that Peter's name doesn't appear again in this gospel until the resurrection morning. After all, why would you mention the name of such a loser? Back in Mark 14, 72, we left Peter weeping. Jesus suffered more rejection and mocking, Mark 15, 1-21, and was finally crucified and buried. Please take a moment to read the fulfillment of all his passion predictions, verses 22-47. The Roman charge against him was treason, and it was inscribed for all to see. It read, The King of the Jews, verse 26. He had given his life as a ransom for many by pouring out his blood of the covenant, Mark 10, 45, 1424. But was this ransom sufficient to cover those who had really failed him? Are his arms strong enough to reach the betrayers, the liars, the unfaithful, the proud, the boastful, the adulterers, and the killers that are now weeping? Are his arms long enough to embrace the Peters of this world? Mark doesn't mention Peter throughout the crucifixion and Jesus' burial. It's like he doesn't deserve to be in the picture anymore. But Mark tells us something that no other gospel writer records on the morning of the resurrection. This is the summary of Mark's gospel, and I have come to call this realization the gospel in two words. It's the most amazing thing. It is the good news captured in just two words. Here it is. Looking up, they, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, saw that the stone had been rolled away although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, 
Do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Mark 16, 4-7. Emphasis added. Did you catch that? Did you see the two words? Can you imagine Jesus that morning giving specific instructions to the angel to mention Peter by name? And Peter, quotation marks, is the gospel in two words. The one who had failed is called by name. Jesus didn't want Peter to think that he was excluded. His blood had covered even his ransom. Jesus had uttered two promises and prophecies together. The first one was that all his disciples would abandon him that night. Mark 14, 27 and 30. Yes, including Peter. And that prophecy had come true. But he had made another promise immediately after. But after I had been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Verse 28. Now the angel reminded the women that this promise would also come true and even Peter was invited. The covenant included even him. No wonder Mark calls his book the good news, the gospel. See Mark 1, 1. I used to belong to a vocal group called Opus 7, which was founded by a friend of mine, Ariel Quintana. One of the songs we sang and recorded kept repeating a phrase that has been in my mind since I started writing this chapter. His arms are long enough to save you. The chorus repeats, His heart is big enough to love you. His arms are long enough to save you. His grace is more than sufficient. Oh, yes, and that is the message that Peter received on Resurrection Morning. And it is also the message that I have become convinced of. That morning, Jesus called my name as well. He has called all his unlikely disciples who know they don't qualify to be in heaven. And he has invited us to accept his blood of the covenant as our ransom. And he has told us that we will see him face to face. This is the gospel. The Son of God came to serve, becoming the suffering servant who, even though he possessed all authority and power, gave his life as a ransom for many. Do you want to accept this good news and become part of the many along with Peter right now? I do. Because I am convinced that on that fateful morning, the angel called my name also. Let's repeat his reminder, sentence by sentence, again and again, until his grace takes over our lives. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Isaiah 43, 1. Emphasis added. And that, my friends, is the good news. Woo-hoo! For more information and resources, go to www.jesus101institute.com. Dot com.